We are downtown. We are historic. We are family. We are scriptural. We are First Baptist Church. Let's stand, congregation, and read this passage of scripture together from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5, 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Cranky James brings the pain. Honestly, he keeps raining on our parade. Do this, don't do that, watch out for this. You feel like saying, this is why we can't have nice things, James, because you keep getting all up in our business. The first big question this morning arising from this text might be, who exactly is James talking to among us here in 2021? Who qualifies as you rich people? Maybe somebody could come up with a worksheet to answer this. Households making less than 250,000 filing jointly, factoring in capital gains, subtracting previous year business income loss on line 17E from tax credits entered on line 6D, part three, schedule C, carry the one. And okay, you are exempt from this passage of scripture for this fiscal year. That'll be $500, please. <laughs> in, in James's day, as with many societies today, there was no question about who qualified as you rich people. There were the very rich and the very poor. Again, as is the case with many societies around the globe today. Our society has a more expansive middle ground and therefore the term rich gets a little slippery. So are you one of the folks James is talking to? Let's just understand that in our day, in our day, there's always somebody less well off than you. And in that light, it's good to remember how James's brother Jesus would put things out there without an explicitly declared audience. He would say, Jesus would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you don't think you need this passage of scripture this morning, then by all means, tune it out. As for the rest of us, let's deal with this. Can we have nice things 
if we do something good for somebody else in exchange? Is there, is there a possessions offset market, like a carbon offset market, so that we can exchange our guilt by doing good things so we can feel better? I mean, James is all got to have good deeds, so let's use this to our advantage, we might think. Or does James really intend to tell us that having good things is not what good Christians do? What's going on here? Is wealth okay as long as you feel guilty about it? The conflict you feel is real conflict. You want to have enough, but you don't want to be a horrible person. Does that describe you? Most of us can relate to that. So what do you do? Is it possible to build wealth you feel you need and not be a monster? Well, here's verse 1 again. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Consider what James says. He says, there are forces of destruction at work which the richest person you know will not be able to hold back. Now, if even the rich are vulnerable, the rich and the powerful are vulnerable in the scheme of things, what about the little guy? And that's the point. These words begin to invite a feeling of unease into our minds. I keep joking I have this past week that James says, stop being rich. He doesn't say that. He says, he does tell us to stop doing a lot of things, uh, it seems, but he, he doesn't say that. But he does say this, what are you counting on? If a building inspector entered this room right now and announced that it is unsound and in danger of imminent collapse, a feeling of unease would come over this gathering. Some would make their way to the exits. Some would demand to see the inspector's credentials, but the mood would definitely sour. There would not be peace in this congregation. One minute you gave zero thought to the structural integrity of this nearly century-old room with its sweeping domed ceiling and its speaker cluster poised like the sword of Damocles. <laughs> it's risky to be in the choir. <laughs> but worth it. Hope nothing happens. Anyway, um, one minute you gave no thought to that and the next minute you're very disturbed. James says that it's so easy to take shelter in wealth and possessions that we don't even notice how much we rely on it for our confidence. Let's all understand that, yes, James was talking to actual rich people here because those who control wealth have power that those of lesser means do not share. And the way that people use such power will have far-reaching effects on people around them for good or for ill. But what James says is scalable in a downward direction. Because there are always people of lesser means than you. 
No matter what your level of wealth, you will have greater power or influence than somebody. By speaking to the richest among us, James points out the reality that all wealth is unstable. And not even the most powerful person is immune from that reality. James is the inspector who has just walked into the room and declared wealth an unstable foundation for your life. Where did your possessions come from? I mean, who designed them? Who gathered the materials and crafted them? Somebody did that. You might quibble and say, a machine made this item, but a person made the machine. Even in the case of precious metals or naturally occurring minerals, someone mined those materials from the ground. You can't get away from the human factor. Everything in your possession is an expression of a person. There is a soul associated with every sock in your drawer. Clearly, clearly often not a pair of souls, uh, but that's another matter. <laughs> a, a person's history, hopes, horrors, an entire human being made in God's image lies behind the things you have. But what good is that knowledge? You know how the system works. You pay your money and you receive a good or a service. Everybody knows that. Why obsess over who cobbled your shoes or who assembled your phone or who delivered your shipment? So there's a person behind every item you call yours. Why does this matter? What happens when you dismiss that reality as incidental or unimportant or too mystical to be of any practical use? In other words, what happens when you forget the human hands, the human hands that produced all you have? Now, look at verses 2 and 3. Your wealth has rotted, your moths have eaten, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Possessions fade, they wear out, their value fluctuates below what you deem useful. James knows that gold doesn't corrode, he's speaking figuratively here. Your holdings become corrupted and compromised by confiscation, or you misplace them, or a deal gone wrong collapses and wipes them out. And what's left? The people who produced them. People you viewed as mere grunt workers supplying the muscle for turning the gears of your aspirations. You paid for the, those things, and they're yours in that sense. But you can't buy a person. The person behind the item, known only to God most likely, certainly does not belong to you. How do you regard that person? Is it possible to sin against someone you've never met? I mean, is the Bible kidding us right now? There are actual people you hurt just because you've not been mindful of a factory worker half a world away? 
James says that's exactly right. He says that all such unconcern for the people who have crafted your belongings is an offense that you will have to answer for when those possessions fade and all that's left is the people who made them. Disregard for those who produce your possessions is on the same level as hoarding. Hoarding elevates possessions over people and that's what happens here in this scenario. Having say over wealth and resources, a lot or just a tiny amount, is not a passive circumstance. When you have something you call your own, you're not a bystander, James says. You are either actively honoring the one who crafted that possession or you are actively dishonoring the one who made it by considering only the thing itself as having any importance. The measure of your well-being then is not your access to resources or even your religious or doctrinal alliances, but rather the measure of your well-being is your regard for people. Now what does regard for people look like? It can be summed up in one word, curiosity. Society has come to think of curiosity as a kind of weird prying into people's lives, an attempt to find out more than you should know about things. Curiosity kills cats and that kind of thinking, but curiosity is actually a humble and serious way of living. Curiosity says knowledge of others' circumstances would shed light on my thinking. Look at verses 4 and 5. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. It's precisely the lack of curiosity that has riled James. He sees people living as if they're unconcerned about the way their choices affect others. James was no doubt familiar with the stories of his brother Jesus excoriating the religious establishment for their lack of concern for the way their brand of righteousness suffocated people both spiritually and economically. The cost of their temple support and their favorable social standing was grinding poverty. That was the cost. Grinding poverty among those over whom they had religious and economic power. We don't live in a theocracy now. There are no Pharisees anymore. You inhabit a different hemisphere of our planet these days. There are 2,000 years of cultural and linguistic and ethnic differences spanning the distance between you and James. You might not even consider yourself to be a person of wealth. So what do James's words have to say to someone today? For anyone with ears to hear, James says this. What does it cost the human race for you to live the way you do. That's curiosity. What would it be like for you and me to put this question to ourselves? 
It's a hard question and one that requires courage because there are many competing voices that will try to persuade you to believe you don't need to ask it. What does it cost the human race for you to live the way you do? The pressure to ignore that question and to ignore James's actual words is intense. So let's set up a little exercise called, How Does James Respond? Here we go. Round one. For instance, isn't it more important that I concern myself with people coming to Christ for salvation than to concern myself with sweatshops producing goods for pennies? Well, there's a question like that in chapter two of James, in which James imagines someone declaring that having faith is really the only important thing. And how does James respond? He says, your faith moves you to concepts, but my faith moves me to action. Okay, round two. You might say, I go to church with people, with rich people and poor people, and I have no problem with that. Do you, James? Well, there's a hypothetical situation James describes, again in chapter 2, which involves Christians gathering and hanging on every word uttered by a rich person in the center of the group while leaving no time to hear what the poor person at the back of the room might have to say. And how would James respond? He says, You won't bar anybody from entering your gatherings. Congratulations. But do the poor among you find in those gatherings that they have a voice they don't have in the rest of the world? If not, what difference does your faith make? And round three of how does James respond? We're not socialists. My faith teaches me to work for a living and take care of my family. My private property is my business. And how does James respond? Well, here in today's text, he speaks of people who carry on with their plans and their affairs without a thought for what effect these dealings have on the people producing goods and services. James says, do you hear the stories of what it's like for those who produce your goods? Do you hear them? Okay, that's the end of how does James respond? I hate that game because James always responds in a way that I don't want him to. And by the way, thanks for playing. And if you're like me, you hated that exercise too. You remember when King Ahab in the Old Testament said he hated the prophet Micaiah because he never prophesied anything good about him, but always something bad? And by the way, Micaiah did not disappoint. Uh, he and James were kindred spirits. That's kind of how I feel about James sometimes. Couldn't he have made, couldn't James have made a, written a prescient section in his epistle on how the middle class needs some sympathy? It's hard because we're afraid so often in this world. Who will care for us if we don't do it ourselves? If we get into the difficulties of life 
who will care for us? We find ourselves in this strange place in which we want eternal life, so we confess Christ as Savior, but we still live in this world and we have to go on. So we try to make life here as comfortable as we can. Our faith can often seem like something that is for later, later on after we die. James says, no, no, your faith, your faith will lead you to be curious about people's lives right now, about what they suffer and what their deepest desires are. This is the faith that gives hope to the world. All other kinds of faith are just empty words. The faith that James speaks of is faith that will lead us to care for each other. And then we will be less and less afraid in this world. Only the church offers that glimpse of heaven's life to the nations. And so again, the question that comes to us from James this morning is, what does it cost the human race for you to live as you do? Curiosity will save your life because it is the way that Jesus teaches us to live. Here's why that's true. Curiosity that we learn from Jesus will give birth to compassion that will reach out to people. Curiosity will bring you to a point where you say, I never knew, I didn't know. Let me come to you now that I know. And that small community of caring will grow to more and more people who will continue to live in compassion for one another, caring for each other and helping each other to gain more and more of Jesus's characteristics. In that fellowship, your fears of having enough to live on will fade away in the security of life together. The dilemma of building wealth the dilemma of building wealth without turning into a monster will become a non-issue because you'll be joined with people you love and trust in building a kind of life that nothing will ever threaten. The question of having nice things will transform into a question of how you could ever live without the treasure of this beautiful fellowship in which you love and are loved. That becomes the nice thing. It is the church in the world right now. It's the church that will represent on earth the kind of life that heaven lives. It's the hope of the world and it starts with the curiosity that faith will teach you. And now notice verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Cheap shoes are cheap for a reason. What is that reason? Amazing electronic devices can't exist in mass quantity unless certain conditions are met. What are those conditions? You can afford a certain good or service. Can a person long afford to provide that good or service to you? This is curiosity. This is 
paying attention to people. What happens to all those people? Do you know? Do you care? Do you hear them? James did. Our Lord did. From Genesis to the Gospels. From your brother's blood cries out from the ground to the people you've oppressed will rise up to judge you at the last day. The Bible demands an accounting from us on how we live with other people, for how we use power and wealth and status to lift others up or merely to insulate ourselves. There is coming a day when you will answer for every careless word, Jesus says. James will not let us escape this haunting reality. Again, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't, you don't have to shed blood to be a murderer. And James tells us that empty words of faith will serve as the perfect weapon. Silent, invisible, indetectable, and who's going to speak for those whom you've ignored? Because they don't have a voice. But God sees. He remembers. He's calling out to you. He's calling out to me through his servant James. James closes this text this morning by telling us there's a reason to be alarmed. Virtue signaling, that is to say, declarations of faith... Endless just declarations of faith don't count. If having nice things means that you don't hear those who have produced those things, then those nice things have become rotten and your life will rot along with them. To acquire possessions and resources with without regard for what effect this has on people in the world is to care more about things than people. This is deadly no matter what you say about what you believe. Sound the alarm, James says. Fake faith is rampant. Come instead to Christ who will teach you how to get curious and how to listen to people the way he does. Curiosity toward people will lead you to the love of God and curiosity toward God will lead you to love people. Will you be curious about God this morning? Do you want to know that kind of life in which you love and are loved in a fellowship for eternity? There's only one who can grant that to you, who can teach you how to live in that way, and that's Jesus Christ. All other ways will fail. All other foundations have been declared unstable and unsound. Come to Christ this morning. He will save your life and He will work to reach this world through you with the treasure that is eternal life. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.